0: Welcome to the Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. As always, we are joining you from the historic Line Hotel in the heart of Washington, D.C.'s Adams Morgan Enclave. Uh, We are thrilled to be joined by Eric Moore today, uh, sommelier and director of sales and customer engagement at one of the country's finest natural wine retail outlets, Domestique. And uh, Eric is equally a vendor for uh, the national distribution company Selection Massal. Uh, Eric cut his teeth working service at uh, Pittsburgh Institution Sonoma Grill and jumped at the chance to join Domestique's opening team in 2018 after a stint at Washington's Pineapple and Pearls. He works to make wine accessible to everyone by redefining the role of the sommelier, engaging historically marginalized groups and building communities of like minded mine lovers. Thank you for joining us, Eric.
1: Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Um, for those of you joining us for the first time, the premise is blessedly simple. We have uh, a bottle to share with each other and this is a Shannon Blanc love fest. Uh, Eric has brought along a bottle from his portfolio. It's a dry Shannon uh, from the designation of origin Mont-Louis, Sur Loire. Uh, at the heart of French chateau country, uh, the cuvee is Les Chapiteurs, uh, Chap- Chapiteurs, uh from uh, France Salmon. Um, as regular listeners may know, my French accent is totally bollocks. Uh, fortunately, uh, Eric speaks uh, fluid and beautiful French, um, so I'll defer to you for the sake of uh, any and all pronunciations. Uh, I followed suit. With uh, a different Shannon from the same corner of uh, the world, uh, albeit uh, Nicolas Choli's, uh Claude de la Bergerie, which is a uh, uh, Bergerie, rather, which is a seven um, from uh, further downstream and uh, Anjou as opposed to terrain. Uh, we'll taste them both while trading thoughts about life and wine, and then I'll close things out with a bit of verse dedicated to our guest. If you like the sound of what we're drinking, Both wines will be available for sale at Revelers Hours, uh, premier wine and pasta bar directly across the street from our Line Hotel Studios. uh, That is Revelers Hour uh, on uh, Columbia uh, Road, again, uh, in the heart of Adams Morgan. Uh, Before we dive into uh, the wines themselves, and while Eric uh, welcomes uh, a couple friends wandering into the Line lobby, few quick questions for you, sir. Um, uh, first, do you have kind of a formative memory of wine? You know, a moment when wine kind of, for the sake of your memory, first enters your consciousness.
1: Um, yeah, so for me, I would say that would be New Year's Eve 1999.
0: Oh wow, that's a that's a very definitive moment. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. we're
1: talking formative, we're gonna go really formative here. Yeah. Um, I was hanging out with a couple of friends, my friend Kyle Wesselman, uh, he lived in a historic neighborhood of Charlotte, and, and bumping Prince on repeat the whole night. <laughs> uh, we we were not uh, not that cultured in 1999. Uh, uh, my my you know patron saint of, of verse was Fred Durst. Oh nice. Uh, oh, Yeah, uh, Fred but,
0: Durst was not partying like it's
1: 1999. No, he 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 he's something else. Uh, but you know you you grow up and you learn. Uh, but yeah, New Year's Eve 1999. Uh, Kyle Wesselman's house. We were hanging out in his backyard jumping on a trampoline. His parents had gone to a neighbor's house for a party. We snuck into the refrigerator. There was a bottle of Corbel. And we walked around the neighborhood crushing a bottle of Corbel between the three of us 11 year olds. Uh, needless to say, I woke up the next morning feeling a little bit strange and not necessarily understanding why. Uh, but Corbel is mostly just sugar. So I, I felt like I had a couple Mountain Dews. Oh, nice. Yeah. But, you know, from there, You know, wine sort of became an option of beverage for me. Uh Um, Like, you know, growing up and like getting into like high school and going to parties and like things that like we would be able to take from, you know, my parents, friends, parents. uh, It's like, well, we could drink wine. Like that, that would be fine. Like we don't have to like I have friends who would always wind up taking gin from their parents bar and nobody liked gin like at the time. It's you know grown to be one of my favorite beverages. But uh, gin, gin's not something you start with necessarily. No, I feel like, no, I feel like gin's not. a bit of an acquired taste. It's also not great when you start with Seagram's gin. Yes, uh, yes, that that was a choice that was made. Uh, but from there, you know, wine in terms of of an idea of of things that we could drink underage and like not be insane. Uh, that kind of entered the fold, starting there, and I had a, a very long love affair with Franzia. Nice. Uh, I've drank some some embarrassing amounts of Carlo Rossi. Nice. Uh, and I I have grown to be a better person because of it. You chipped, you kind of skipped the cheap beer phase. And oh when... no no no, that existed. Oh, is concurrent. Well. These oh. are concurrent phases. I, I wouldn't say it was concurrent because <laughs> like my cheap beer phase was more so late high school where okay. I, right. my friends and I drank a beer called American. Uh, which was $6 <laughs> for a 30-rack, and uh, we, we graduated into Lion's Head. Geographically indeterminate American. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, college was all about bush light. Uh, okay. I went to school yeah, that, in that's Wilmington, a, that's North familiar, Carolina. That's a familiar experience, yes. Um, my, my roommates, we had a, a wallpaper of camo bush light cans that made up one of the walls in our okay. house. Um, so we were, were very tasteful interior designers.
0: Yeah. But there was a concurrent cheap wine phase. That, yeah, uh, I mean, I would say with
1: it. I would say that that cheap beer phase kind of like took over where I didn't really think about wine a lot in college. Yeah. Uh, except for like going out on dates and be like, ooh, like I I know things about wine. Quote,
0: yeah. Unquote. Well, and yeah, exactly. And, and you know, wine's a bit of a flex. Yeah. You know, in, oh, in those social in those social settings, and uh,
1: I could recall uh, a date that I was on where I I was feeling very confident and i went to go order a bottle of somer champagne thinking that it was champagne oh heard. yeah yeah 2000, 2009 was a was a real time for me being 21
0: this champagne has lost its gas and why is <laughs> it, it <wasn't> red <laughs> uh, ironically though <clears throat> that was likely Chenin blanc um, uh, so, it was cabernet franc it was it wasn't summer blanc it was summer <laughs> champagne okay heard, 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 heard. Um, uh, yeah so yeah even even more embarrassing um, uh, so uh, for your sake What was, you know, the pivotal moment um, in time when, you know, you graduated from cheap wine to there's more here?
1: Yeah, when I started working at Sonoma Grill, I... I had interviewed three times for like an AM server. This job is in there. Pittsburgh. This is in Pittsburgh. And, and what is
0: has uh, laid the scene for uh, non Pittsburgh, non yinzers um, Yeah. What is what is Cinema Grill like?
1: So Cinema Grill is unfortunately shuttered, but uh, from the early two thousands up until you know twenty fifteen when I left there. It was one of the best restaurants in the city, and it was one of the formative restaurants for a lot of people. It launched a lot of careers. It helped guide a lot of people in the city. Uh, it was located downtown, right next to the, right next to the convention center. It was attached to a hotel, uh, but it was the you know the wine destination in downtown Pittsburgh for at least a decade. Uh, an extremely large domestic wine list. It was something like four hundred and seventy-five bottles, mm-hmm. including like the reserve list. And it was where I really learned to appreciate and love wine. Um, it, it started out as a situation where I was working mornings and I would bus, you know, at night and kind of learn some things from some servers. and I would see how much ser- how much money these servers were making selling like these big bottles of wine, and I was like, I've got to do this. Like I've got to somehow do this. And so we had somebody who was a sommelier, and then we had a couple people who were training to become sommeliers and they were always willing to, to taste with me and, and really kind of educate the entire staff. Uh, it was a really like hands-on kind of senior staff, like let's bring everybody along so that we could all be as successful as possible. And Blair Halpin, who is like probably one of the more formative people in my in my wine journey, uh, started tasting me in the mornings and the first wine that like really kind of caught my attention was Stagsley Petit Syrah. Nice. Yeah, uh, and so I swear everybody, my, my taste does Evolve and get better. Uh, but it was, you know, a wine like that where I was just like, okay, this wine offers so much. It's got structure, it's got fruit, it's got, you know, a lot of different things going on. And then, you know, that same day, he was like, oh, like, have you ever had, you know, good cab? And I was like, no. And so, like, the first cab that I ever had yeah. that I really appreciated was Keenan Cabernet. And I was like, whoa.
0: Yeah, it's so, funny. I have a similar kind of gateway drug for the sake of Turley's Inn. Yeah. Oh, you know? yeah. And, 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 you know, it, it, Speaks me in the sense that you know the things that you know you first you know kind of gravitate to are not necessarily the things you grow old with. You um, know, absolutely. you know, for the sake of for the sake of anything artistically, but you know, particularly when it comes to wine.
1: Yeah. Um, but but you know the first you know few days that we were you know tasting these big bold reds, that was honestly what the restaurant was kind of built around. It's what yeah. I mean, they wanted to drink
0: that, or I mean that that
1: kind of speaks to the moment too. Yeah. Yeah, it was that. It was super oaky Chardonnay. Like, well, yeah,
0: that, that was the, you know, that was the it girl of, I, I of cannot, that era.
1: I cannot begin to explain how much Mare Soleil that I sold. Uh, and it was just one of those things people were like, oh, like, what's your butter? It's like, I got you. Yeah. yeah I, I got you. <laughs> and and these ones sort of started pushing me into directions of like, okay, well, if these things are good, like what are things that California, what are things that Oregon really do well? And so that started moving me into Oregon Pinot Noir. It started moving me into Zinfandel. It started moving me into Merlot. And Merlot was one of those things that I used to trick people into drinking all the time. Um, they would, people would always describe what they would want to drink. They'd be like, you know, I want something dark-fruited, but, you know, somewhat soft, but has substructure, some tan. And I'd be like, I think Merlot would work for you. And they'd be like, no, I hate Merlot. And so I'd be like, let me pour you a taste of something. You hate the idea of Merlot. Yes. Yeah, You, you yeah. watch sideways. Like, <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is 2011, 2012. Yeah. yeah. Like, people were still really into that movie. You,
0: you want something labeled as Pinot Noir that tastes like Merlot.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I would always pour people Trifeth and Merlot. Yeah. They'd be like, this is brilliant. And I'd be like, cool. It's 15 bucks a glass. I'd be like, that's great. I'm like, excellent. Don't ask me what it is.
0: Um, you know, how was your own palate evolving at this time? You know, were you, um, you know, at the end of the night? Drinking Merlot yourself or yeah, butter Richard?
1: I was drinking a ton of Merlot. I was I was struggling with white wine at that point in time yeah. in my career. So there were a couple of things that I really liked. You know, some off the beaten path things. There were a couple of, of examples of like Roussan and Marsan, some Rhone varieties that were coming from California. So white that wines had. that drink like red wines. Yeah. And I would say within the the next year or so there i started gravitating towards white wine i had some really good examples of sauvignon blanc i had you know my first domestic chenin blanc and then i was able to start traveling after that okay which then really informed how my palate was
0: built. yeah i i fell in love with you a little bit we were talking about you know traveling in the wine world and you know i, th- I think for some you know american wine industry Um, You know, folks, there's a little bit of like an East Coast, West Coast kind of uh, beef. Um, And, you know, talking about going to California versus, you know, going to Europe. And and you said something in the effect of, you know, why would I go to Napa when for the same you know, outlay, I can just go to Paris. Um, and yeah. and I, I was like, I never thought about it that way, but you're <laughs> absolutely right.
1: <laughs> yeah, the, the first time that I went to Europe, I wasn't even thinking about wine. It just yeah. was something that sort of started happening while we were there. So I, I went up flying into Ireland with my buddy Pat, yeah. and the first stop that we go to is this, this spot in Temple Bar, and we order lunch and I have a beer, but I also like look over. And a temple bar in Dublin. Yeah. Oh, a temple bar is yeah. great. Yeah. 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 And so this guy, <coughs> I order, you know, I'm 23 years old. I'm like, yeah. all right, yeah, let's, uh, let's have a Guinness. And I order a Guinness and I have this sandwich and I'm sitting there and this guy is like eating the same sandwiches as I am drinking a glass of wine. He's like having the time of his life. And I'm like, what are, you, what are you drinking, man? He's like, yeah, I'm having this Barbera. And so I look at the menu, the Barbera is three euro. And I'm like, that's about the same price as the beer that I'm drinking. So I'm like, let, let me have one of these as well. And this is one of the first times that I'm like, oh, these things help one another. Like oh, you, don't, cool. you don't have to do these things separately. Like you don't eat something and you don't drink something. You can do it together. And I was like, no wonder he was having such a good time. And so that was our first you know, few hours being in Ireland. Oh, that's was, wild. I mean, I don't.
0: I don't think about drinking Barbera, at Temple Bar. (laughs) No, uh, no, absolutely. (laughs) But I bet bet they have a sneaky, a sneaky good uh, wine list.
1: Yeah, and like I don't remember the name of the place, but it was like it was kind of slightly off the beaten path, and it was just, just this delicious sandwich place. Yeah, and I'm like, huh. Like, I don't know how I wound <laughs> up, you know, making this decision, you know, outside of being informed by this gentleman near me. But it, it's not, like, the, the go-to. It's like, yeah, I'm going to drink a bunch of wine while I'm in Ireland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and not to say that we, I drank much more wine when I was in Ireland. We actually did find this really cool restaurant uh, where I had this, um, this summer champagne incident um, It's like, uh, called Fallon & Burn, yeah. uh, which I believe is still open. But there, there was, like, the other place that we drank wine when we were, we were over there. They had this really cool wine bar there. And getting over to, to mainland Europe after that, especially being in France and like having, we had a very stressful introduction to Paris uh-huh. where we had to go to this hostel, but the, we had to like meet the guy in the train station. It's the first time I've been to France and there's armed guards walking around and I'm like, this is how we get kidnapped. <laughs> uh, and so like we meet this guy and he's like super sketchy that he like walks us through this alley and takes us up to this elevator and then like we're into this beautiful room and I'm like, okay, this, this worked out, thank God. And we will go down, and we find like a monoprix or something like that, and we wind up buying like six bottles of wine. We're like, okay, this is all cheap, and there's like two bottles of like three euro demi sparkling that we're also drinking, and and like this is where like a different cheap wine phase comes into play because the wine quality that you have, for it's good, cheap. it's
0: good cheap wine, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah.
1: so that started making me challenge about, challenge the way that I thought about how wines are priced here and how, you know, what I'm getting for, for the price point uh, when it comes to domestic wine. Well, I,
0: I think also people's expectation about, yeah. you know, what they get uh, for, for their money. And, you know, I think the role that wine plays in people's life and, you know, historically stateside has very much been a luxury good, whereas, you know, on the continent, particularly in France, it is... Mother's milk. It is. It is part of the fabric of life for prince and pauper um, in a in a really profound way. And um, you know, I, I think we both lament that a lot of times in American wine service, we perpetuate this myth of wine as a luxury good instead of understanding it as a part of the fabric of life. And in setting, instead of understanding it as something that is from farmers and not you know wealthy you know landed aristocrats.
1: Absolutely. And you know that's a you know if you skip ahead a little bit that's a big part of the reason that I do what I do now that you know I I don't have to try to sell people something that they don't want to buy yeah and that, you know, there's, there's an understanding that this is you know you want to have this experience with whatever it is that you you be dining upon that evening
0: yeah so uh, we've name dropped summer champagne uh, a couple times which is iconic uh, Cabernet Franc from the heart of the Loire Valley um, yet we are drinking um, the middle Loirs. Uh, other staple here, uh, Chenin Blanc. Um, And uh, you've delivered um, a bottle, uh, I'll let you speak to it, uh, because your French accent is better, but uh, a bottle from your book, uh, from Mont-Louis-sur-Loire, which is um, on the southern bank of the Loire opposite Vouvray, and it is a bit of an underdog appellation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, in the last decade I would say that mont has become a much sexier appellation than Vouvray.
0: Uh, it, it has, and I think I think in Vouvray now, they're like the stodgy, you know, older brother, and uh, yeah, Mont-Louis, you know, Montlouis has this historical representation for pet Petnat, um, and, you know, the land is is, you know, kind of has been historically more affordable there. And historically, actually, a lot of that wine was bottled as Vouvray. And now they're doing their own thing. They have their own designation of origin for their pet gnats. And now it's like, you know, we're hip. You guys aren't. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, and the, my favorite thing about Mont-Louis being hip, being cool, having its own moment, is that there's there's so much quality to back it up. Yeah. Uh, you have producers like Ludovic Chanson, like Frantz Soman, who are making wines that... that Blow my mind, you know. As much as you know, my first introductions in Nivôtre did these wines excite me that much more. And so, what we have today is Le Chapitre, uh, which is going to be a single site Chenin Blanc uh, coming from one of his mont Louis parcels. This is sometimes blended into Mineral Plus or some of his other wines, mm-hmm. uh, but this is only made in except- exceptional vintages. So, the last time this was made was 17. Um, uh, so we have the 19 vintage and I believe the last time that it was made before that was the, was 2014. Awesome. Um, so France, uh, is somebody who I've fortunately gotten to visit and, you know, to see where he works. He has all of his, so you've been here. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I haven't seen his vineyards actually. I've just been to his house really drunk. Uh, uh <laughs> yeah. Gave, yeah. He gave me a really, really great tour after another winemaker dropped us off after doing It looks, um,
0: so I, I, you know, in researching for the episode, just, uh, the internet and there's this great uh, underappreciated wine blog called Wine Terroir. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, <laughs> it's lovably haphazard, you know, for the sake of the layout and stuff like that, but the content's amazing. Yeah. And um, this estate looks idyllic. It looks like a postcard of the French countryside.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, you have a, a beautiful kind of mix of limestone, you have some silex in there, of course, a little bit of clay mixed in. You have like these beautiful, lightly rolling hillsides. Uh, He he just, you know, he's not somebody who you would look at and be like, you know what, you're going to make unbelievable wines. Uh, he's somebody who is very understated. He comes from a, a background. His first career was forestry. Yeah, Quebecois forester. Yeah, turned uh, turn turn, <laughs> turn winemaker. <Yeah>. Amazing. Um, <laughs> you know, at Domestic we love a second career winemaker. It's yeah, one of our, yeah, it's yeah. one of our favorite I just
0: I, I feel like that's a trope in the yes. in the industry. And, Absolutely. And yeah. I think I think that appeals to anyone. You know, the industry also attracts a lot of people with wanderlust, and and yes. I think that uh, that appeals to all of us.
1: Yeah. Um, but, you know, this is a wine that kind of speaks to the core tenets of, of Francis winemaking. He wants to make pristine wines that are beautiful, that are complex, that can age, that, that have layers and layers and layers to make you think about, to give you plenty to talk about, to make you want to open another bottle of wine. Uh, I have yet to come across a bottle from him that I have not wanted to share with somebody. Um, and not, you know, that's of course how I generally approach wine, but like when I open a bottle of wine from France Simon, I'm running out the door to look for somebody. It's like, yo, you, you've got to try this, like, please have a glass of this with me. And the way that this wine kind of just hops out of the glass at you immediately, this really beautiful fruit, you have a little bit of spice to it, you have a, a kiss of oxidation, but you have like this sweet yellow peach kind of delightful quality that I, I, I can't get past.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you name-drop Purity, too, which is something I always, you know, get out of Well-Made made Chenin and a lot of the dry wines from, from Mont-Louis. Um, there's something, like, crystalline about it, you know. Um, it makes me think of chalk, um, you know, which is evocative because, you know, the that is the predominant soil there. Um, and, you know, this is an interesting wine to me, too, in the context of Mont-Louis, which is a bit of a kind of natural wine destination and in the context of Domestique, because this doesn't have a quote unquote natty flavor profile. Yeah. You know, this is this is, you know, a very elegant wine that kind of just happens to be natural. You know, yeah. it's, it's it's not a, you know, headline, you know, kind of crazy t shirted, like look at me guys, you yeah. know, I'm funky kind of wine. It's
1: it's very sophisticated. I mean, what what initially drew me to Selection Mason and to working at Domestique was sort of that ethos that it's like, okay, yeah, like natural wine, what does that really mean? What is natural wine? Um, And it is all about the farmer. It's all about how you're making the wine. It's not about, you know, the end result necessarily. It's not about some stylistic out there esoteric thing that's like, oh, like that's natural wine. Like natural wine is the work that you do. And the result can be this. It could be, you know, any number of different things that express terroir in a different way. And that's, that seems like a lazy thing to say that, you know, it expresses terroir in a different way, but these are wines that the, what it tastes like is meant to be representative of where the wines are from. And they're not meant to be more than that. They're not meant to be, you know, some statement of, of ideology on sulfur or, or you know, you know, how you think that wine should be aged.
0: Yeah, which is, you know, sometimes my beef with, um, you know, self-consciously natural wines is they feel more dogmatic
1: than they do, you
0: know, expressive.
1: Yeah. Like, do you you're making a... Why are you making this wine? Are you making this wine because it is the best representation of what you're able to do? Or is it the best representation of what you think wine should be? And I think that the natural wine community gets caught up in that a lot. And you see... You see a growth as people are, are in it a bit longer, where they start to realize it's like, oh, like I don't need to be so dogmatic about this. I don't need to only think about you know wines that are made with zero sulfur as being like the natty wines. And yeah, I think that there's you know just there's plenty of of room for all of these wines under the umbrella, but it needs to be less focused on a style. And a taste profile of what people think it is, and take a little bit more of a look at what people are doing and why they're doing it.
0: Yeah, because um, actually, both of these wines are sulfured, um, yeah. minimally, yeah. Um, but uh, both the wines we're drinking today are sulfured. They're both fermented with native yeast, um, you know, they're both biodynamically by by farmed. Um, the second one we're going to enjoy, famously so. Uh, the first one, I don't think he's.
1: Certified, he's not he, certified. Yeah, he's, he, he he's plays around certified. with treatments. Yeah, yeah. 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 As, as people will, and, you, know, <laughs> you just find things that work for you within your regimen, and it's like, okay, like I see how this affected this, and I like what it does. And so, Franz is definitely somebody who's very adaptive to 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 new ideas. And if he feels that it's going to make his wine better, then he's going to give it a shot. Uh, have you visited him? Had you visited him before you started with Selection Masal? No, was I had, n- I had okay. never heard of him. Oh, okay, heard, Okay. Yeah. I. Uh, you know, uh, that's not true. I, I had definitely seen his wines on a couple of trips in New York, but I'd never purchased them. Yeah. And then when I first started working, well, like my first day at domestic, when we're unloading, you know, 150 cases of wine to stock the store, I see these wines and I'm like, Oh, that looks really familiar. And I, it's like one of the first, you know, one of the first wines in a case or two that I bought when I first started working there. Oh, cool. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't have a ton of background on France, and yeah. he's a he and his wife too, Marie Thibault, are two winemakers who I just immediately that I immediately fell in love with. Their yeah. their wines are are highly representative of what I would like to be seen within the natural wine world.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. Thanks for sharing it, man. Um, what has your
1: experience
0: traveling abroad been like as a person of color? You know, do you find that you know? you're the only one in the room more often than not. And, you know, is that changing?
1: Uh, It's definitely changing. I would say the difference of 10 years ago to now is is pretty astounding. Um, Like, being in the Loire in January and February of this year uh, comparative to being, you know, in the Loire Valley in 2014 uh, is, I wouldn't say it's night and day. Yeah. But, like, it's one of those things where, like, I see another person of color and it's like, yeah. What's up? <laughs> Are you, is,
0: that, is that something you were very aware of when you first started going there?
1: It wasn't something that I was very aware of when I first started going there. It, it was something that I really noticed once I started seeing more people of color oh, uh, yeah. on these trips. And I was like, oh, shit, uh, I was the um, only one. Yeah, I was the only black dude here for a while. <laughs> um, and, you know, I've never been treated any differently by, by winemakers or anything yep. like that, by importers um, in France, uh, maybe another country. Uh, which, you know, we don't have to dump on as I always have yeah. to do. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I had a, I had a really interesting experience uh, in a country south of France uh, where like... <laughs> to be a,
0: an anonymous country, an yeah. anonymous European country. Yes. yes.
1: Uh, where, you know, people, there was a, a winemaker at a winery that like a friend had had recommended to me that I had never really drank from. It's was like, oh, the wines are great. And I was like, okay. And like the... Gentleman giving us the tour, and I don't recall who he was, but he's just like, Oh, like, I'm so surprised that you're here. Uh, I'm like, What? And he's just like, Yeah, like, I didn't know black Americans drank a lot of wine. And I was like, What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs>
0: this, this black American does.
1: <laughs> and I was just I can't, like, I can't speak
0: for all black I was Americans, like, but okay,
1: yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And so, like, I'm like going through the wine, and he's like, Wow, you, you know what you're talking about. And I'm just like, What, what is happening here? Like, why? Yeah. What is this? uh do you Do you feel naive for that sake uh or or is it just one of those
0: things that you know
1: no, you've been, you've weird. been
0: lucky to you know avoid
1: no uh, it was just weird yeah like i i don't feel like that's representative of a of a you know a large swath of the world in general yeah uh you're gonna you 're gonna run into those people in your life yeah uh, i i've lived in places where you know you're going to just you're gonna have incidents yeah uh but it was just it was the it was a very strange one because it was like I didn't, I didn't see that one coming. Was it, like, an out-of-body experience? No. Like, I, like, like kind of how I'm, like, looking at you, like, telling the story, like, uh, i like, remember yeah. like, that confusion. Like, that's... That, I, like, how... Yeah. Was, like is, is this happening? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, like, kind of coming out of it and, like, going back to the hostel that we were staying in, my buddy and I, uh, he was just like, so that was something. And I was just yeah. like, okay, I'm glad I wasn't the only person that noticed Well, I that. mean, and you,
0: you're dealing with, you know, agricultural corners of the world. And, you know, there is a profound ignorance for, you know, the sake of how monolithic a lot of those populations are. Yeah. Um, and
1: it's, you know, a lack of exposure. It's a lack yeah. of, you know, a lot of things. And so it's not, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily view it as, as you know, malicious. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you can't excuse people for not knowing. Things Did you like
0: have experiences like that on the floor? when you first started selling wine in Pittsburgh? Oh, yes. Yeah.
1: Oh, yes. One uh, of uh, what a, what a my favorite stories... Um, we, I have two, two about this, actually. Uh, my first favorite one is there was an NRA convention in Pittsburgh.
0: Uh, no, not the National Restaurant Association. No, no. not them. No, not them. <laughs> the, other,
1: the other NRA. Uh, and... I walk up to this gentleman sitting solo uh, and he was at a table that was right next to our private dining room, which is right next to like the terminals. And I'm sitting there and I go to take his order and he looks up at me and he's really confused. And so I start talking to him about specials, start talking about wine. He's like, I just need a minute. And I was like, all right. And so then like he takes a phone call and he's like, man, I tell you what, I ain't never had no black server before. And wow. I was just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Where do you live? Oh, and like I, this guy was it, like, and this is not to the like, cast versions of people who wear these things, but he's like in overalls, camo hat, boots, yeah. like straight he, out of Central Casting. He, he was, yeah, he was, yeah. he was a walking like you couldn't have couldn't have picked somebody better yeah. for, for this. Yeah. And I'm just like, what is what? And yeah. It's like, all right, uh, and so I gave the table away. I was like, ah, you don't, I don't need to be. I mean, what is period. what is
0: that like in Pittsburgh though? I mean, Pittsburgh's not the. I mean, I don't think of it as the most diverse city no. in, in America. No, uh, not, not, not at all. Not say it's lacking diversity, but no, but it's
1: definitely a I mean, city it's that. Things. Yeah, it, it's yeah. a city that's you know had its issues with race yeah. for years, uh, and so it was interesting that my first experience having that was somebody who was from out of town because I kind of expected it to be somebody who was more local. Oh, yeah, interesting. Um, and it's terrible to say that it's like, oh yeah, I definitely expected this to happen, but like I expected it to happen. Did that make it easier to some extent? It made it funnier okay and like it made it it's like oh yeah you were right uh, like on one of those things that you hate to be right about yeah um but the second one was i had helped open a restaurant in pittsburgh called or the whale and everything about this restaurant was overpriced um you know it was a good experience it was definitely not one that was worth the money um and it was hard for me to you know sort of justify some of the things that we were charging and it was hard for me to, to like get behind some of it. so like I would try to put things on our wine list that just made sense, you know at certain price points or things that I could put into places that made sense for people. Uh, and so I have this table, it's a four top of, of, business gentlemen and I walk up and they're talking about wine. And so I start asking them, you know, what they're looking for. And the one gentleman's talking to me and he's like, yeah, we're looking for something bolder, maybe something with a little bit of age. And so I had this wine, uh, Sciopatino and Rufusco from La Terre, had a little bit of bottle age on it, big wine. I'm like, yeah, like you want this, like if this is the price point you're looking to stay within. And another guy looks up and he's just like do you know what you're talking about? Did, can you send the sommelier over? And I was like, oh, uh, that's me. And he's like, <laughs> no, seriously. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no, seriously. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and so then I, uh, I put down two bottles of this wine. And I was just like, so just tell me how much you guys like this and how much I was right. And then kind of walked away from the table. Oh, wow. Yeah. You gave it a mic drop. Yeah. And they, they love the wine. Nice. And then I was like, yeah, you can't have any more, though. You get two bottles. That's yeah. all you get. Yeah. Um, and so, like, these were very formative experiences for me because I, I like to think of myself as somebody who is, you know, adaptable and can think on the fly. And, yeah. and those were situations that really kind of made me prove my mettle. Yeah. And um, am I happy that they happened to me? Absolutely not. But am I, you know, are they experiences that have made me better? For sure. I find that, I mean... That's the the difficult balance to strike in service sometimes too, because at, at the end of the
0: day, you know, um, you are accountable for delivering an experience, you know, but you have to wear, you know, all the shit that people throw your way too. Yes. Um, and you know, I am hugely <coughs> lucky to be the most normative person or unlucky at times to be the, the most normative, you know, looking Samuel figure of all time. Yeah. And so, you know, by lieu of that people haven't questioned my authority. Maybe when I wear an ill-feeling t-shirt, but that's, you know, that's my choice. You know, yeah. that's, that's not something I was born into. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it is... I can't imagine what it's like to to go to people's side and just, you know, have to justify yeah. uh, your your presence as the expert, to feel like, you know, you are kind of behind an equal uh, yeah. in, in that sense and, you know, trying to flout, you know... Expectations, or overcome this initial border, or just you know be a better version of you know yourself for the sake of you know winning over a
1: table. Yeah, and I would say there were some portions of that that definitely made me a worse version of myself. Yeah, um, because you know in that restaurant especially there was enough of a frequency of like little tiny things that would happen. Yeah, that it like made me sort of bitter about the industry, and I think that was like sort of the beginning of the end of it for me in terms of wanting to work the floor and wanting to, you know, kind of be involved in restaurants, really.
0: Yeah, that means you feel like you get stuck in these moments where you are less Eric Moore, who loves wine, and you're just performing the role of sommelier Eric.
1: Yeah, and, like, it, it got to a point where it's like, okay, like, I'm actively trying to not be a jerk to people, where it's like, oh, like, you know, I had to deal with, like, these two terrible tables and it's kind of like set my night off in a way that like somebody asks me a question that's not, you know, there aren't stupid questions, but a question that's kind of annoying and it's yeah. like, ah. And like then, then your night's like done. Yeah, I, I had yeah, a few yeah. too many of those nights kind of starting in that uh, restaurant.
0: Do you, you know, find that experience has changed
1: uh, working retail? Um, it made me very appreciative for the outlet. It made me very appreciative to work in a place where people knew where they were coming to and knew what they were going to get and knew what to expect and knew who the staff was. Um, you know, Pretty early on, we set what I feel like was a high bar that we gave you know, almost a restaurant level of service to people in a, in a retail setting as opposed to being like, oh, okay, yeah, good luck. Um, we wanted to make sure that people felt taken care of within our four walls, and it's something that I was able to transfer from that, and it's something that has definitely made me better on the retail end of things.
0: Um, how do you feel like the way, you know, you're discussing these wines has has changed in a retail setting versus in a restaurant setting you were in before?
1: Um, I swear so much more. No. <laughs> <laughs> you more freedom uh, to swear, yeah, freedom uh, to swear. Yeah. Uh, not that that's not who I was before, but no, no, it's one of those things where I can, you know, it's a lot easier to meet people where they are because there's not this song and dance of of being in this, service relationship yeah. like we're offering service but it's not in the same way it feels like
0: a more egalitarian construct yeah. than like you know coming over as the designated wine expert yeah yeah
1: and you know i i don't we don't talk down to people we don't talk at people we definitely try to meet people where they are and then we try to help them kind of grow from that we we try to you know put people into exactly what they want and Uh, We also try to to cultivate a very open-minded clientele, which I think that, you know, kind of different to working in restaurants, you're able to sort of cultivate that almost immediately uh, because there is a little bit more inherent trust there uh, on the the retail side of things where in in the restaurant, you know, in restaurants, I feel like people are like, okay, what are you trying to sell me? What are you trying to get me to spend more money on? Why do well, we... and the,
0: the markup's a lot higher, too. Well, yeah. You know, the, the barriers to entry are lower in retail, which is nice.
1: Yeah. Um, but it's one of those things that's also really wild to me where, you know, you would go like at a restaurant. It's like, okay, like, I would like to have a glass of this wine. It's like, okay. It's like, well, you know, if you think you're going to have a few, like, maybe we get you into a bottle. Let's save you some money. Um, and then they're like, no, I don't, I'm not going to drink a bottle of wine and they have five glasses of wine and then you try to charge it for the bottle anyway that they're very upset that you put that on there. It's like, I just, I just want to save you money. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to help. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that, you know, you can show intention a little bit better in yeah. retail front as well.
0: And I, I like the way you all kind of talk about wine. You know, I, I'd say, you know, we try to tell our servers when they go through training that we don't want them to affect, you know, what they think of as a traditional wine vocabulary. Now, I mean, some of those words are significant, you know, for the sake of, you know, talking structure and, you know, talking flavor profiles and stuff like that. But in terms of the way they relate to things, you know, we want them to, to try to make it their own. Yes. Um, I like the way you all do that on your site. So um, with the bottle we're enjoying now, uh, you say uh, that uh, this particular Mon Louis vibes with Gregorian chants Skeleton keys and kung pao chicken.
1: Yes. Did you come up with those three um, vibes? So, so those were not my. <laughs> those are not your vibes. Uh, okay. I am not going to take credit for that. <laughs> uh, we have we have a person who does that. Okay. Uh, who does that very well. Uh, but I I could definitely get on board with all of that. Um, there is if you go to Franz and Marie's house, their their, you know, their cave in the back. It's these big open doors, like big push-open doors, and you, it's just rock formation, and it's beautiful. It's this big hollow cave. And like, you, you feel like if you walk in, there's going to be, like, monks, like, arms crossed in the they Yeah, they're, in the Loire, they're, they're kind
0: of cave people. Yeah.
1: They're like troglodytes. No, they, they, I mean, they are. They, they are. are, yeah. It's, it's
0: like to a poetic extent yeah. because, you know, the, the very cellars are, you know, dug underneath the vineyards themselves. It's, yeah. it's, it's really beautiful. And it, it's a big part of the reason why there's such a long tradition of making sparkling
1: wine there. Yeah. But you have, you know, it's like, okay, I can definitely, there would definitely be some Gregorian chants going on here. Uh, in terms of skeleton keys, like Francis wines give me like a very classic old school vibe. Like I, I feel like I should be wearing a suit. Uh, and like a top hat, not a top hat, but like some sort of, you know, proper hat. Yeah. Uh, opening doors with skeleton keys, having a pocket watch, uh, throwing my jacket over puddles, uh, that sort of thing. And there's like a gallantry. Yeah. Yeah. And then who doesn't like Kung Pao chicken? Uh that's, that's very true. Uh, uh yeah. if you don't like Kung Pao chicken, please, please come confront yeah. us about this. We'll yeah. have a conversation.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Those are, those are all. Those are all good ones. It uh, makes me sad that I don't have vibes for the. We'll have to. Maybe we can come up with vibes for the second wine. We can uh, definitely come up with vibes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the second wine is uh, from Nicolas Jolie. Uh, we talked kind of off um, the record about Nicolas. Uh, he's a lawyer uh, turned um, winemaker, and uh, in as much as he's a winemaker, he is a champion of uh, biodynamics, uh, which is. Um, kind of a regenerative form of agriculture um, uh, that's derived from a mystical set of philosophies as uh, distilled in a set of lectures delivered by an Austro-Hungarian polymath named Rudolf Steiner in the 20s, but um, you know, uh, it is a, a fittingly kind of magical wine to, to my mind. Uh, this one is from Sauvignon. Uh, Sauvignon is uh, downstream from Uh, Mont-Louis and Vouvray. Um, So you are closer to the Atlantic. Um, It is on the opposite bank of the Loire. So Mont-Louis is on the south bank. Um, It is Sur-Loire. This is on the north bank of the Loire, a southeast-facing slope. Um, uh, In the northern hemisphere, those exposures are ideal uh, for optimal ripening grapes. The terroir is very different here, though. So um, Eric name-dropped all the calcareous uh, rock in the vineyard uh, for the sake of our first offering. Calcareous is is calcium carbonate bearing, which gives the wine this live wire, racy purity. Um, This is a very different corner of the, of the Loire geographically. You have um, uh, what the French call the, um, the, the massif that um, is this ancient rock, um, this ancient um, metamorphic rock that um, uh, stretches uh, well to the north into Brittany. And this is kind of like the southern extreme of it. So you're on schist here, um, blue schist, which is very hard and tends to devolve into um, like a thin layer of sandy soil, which gives this wine breadth. So, um, you know, this is much more maximalist um, then the first wine. Um, uh, I imagine you've had this
1: before. I have. Uh, this is one of my, my first favorite examples of Chenin Blanc. Year uh, was like me feeling, it was like me growing into Chenin Blanc and being like, oh, yeah. I like some fancy stuff too. Uh, so like the first bottle uh, from Jolie that I ever purchased was a 10 Coulé de Sorrent uh, that I probably should still be holding on to, but I drank it, like, seven years ago. Uh, I, get,
0: I get impatient about it, too. Uh, Clos de Couliceront is um, one of, without, you know, hyperbole, one of the most iconic vineyards in France. Um uh, the Sun King Louis XIV was so obsessed with it, he tried to visit. Apparently, he got stuck in the mud. Um, didn't make it. Uh, it was like the, the, the like the old, like the original wine tourism. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Empress uh, Josephine, uh, huge fan, um, and pretty much anybody who could get their hands on it there after. Um, kind of stumbled in. Jolie kind of stumbled into it as a uh, family holding. Um, we're not all that lucky, um, but. He, uh, in the late 70s, he converted the estate to biodynamics in the early 80s and has since been a champion for um, this particular terroir and, and also this way of working the land. Um, his daughter, actually, uh, does more of the work um, day-to-day, the uh, winemaking, Yeah, yeah. and um, the wines have gotten a lot more consistent um, yeah. <laughs> uh, since she took over. Um, uh, yeah, he, Nicolas is, is, is kind of a big-picture uh, guy, yes, um, uh, definitely. But uh, this particular parcel, so close, a, a French designation for uh, walled uh, vineyard. Um, uh, this would have been walled by 12th century, 13th century Cistercians, um, and basically, it's a statement of you know uh, this you know vineyard was sufficiently valuable that you know we wanted to make sure no one had access to it. Um, and um, this is a, a smaller subparcel of a, a larger vineyard called Rochamoine. Um, this wine is aged, um, in barrel, uh, kind of larger, uh, neutral, neutral barrel, um, for the better part of a year. Um, and that's about it, you know, uh, they don't do a lot to it. Uh, yeah. uh, they famously ferment at pretty high temps. Um, uh, that's something that the French do in general. Um, and, you know, it tends to make for more kind of textural, um, um, you know, savory wines than, than you get in places that are keeping temps cooler which tends to preserve the fruit on wines um, uh, but this is a wine that is like supremely textured and, and I like that image of it as a gateway drug to to Shannon because yeah. it's loud it um, is. C-Cle- it's- is a wine that you open like a couple of days ahead of time yeah. and decant the hell out of yeah um and you know it eats like a meal you yeah. know it is it is Loire Valley Shannon that is every Bit as big as like Turley's in.
1: You can't kill it. No, like you can't <laughs> kill it. Yeah, like yeah. You yeah, can try. Yeah. You cannot kill
0: it. It is like the, the Twinkie, the cockroach yes. of uh, of Laura Valley Shenans.
1: Savonier it, will um, will survive. It'll survive us um, all. It'll survive us all.
0: Yeah. Us all. yeah. Um, uh, and to my mind, I, I think this is kind of a fun one too because you get a sense of the versatility, the singular versatility mm-hmm. uh, of of this grape, um, which is one of my favorite things about it. You know, what is your you know Shenan you know, kind of great love, why this grape?
1: um I mean, you know you'll see the shirt that I'm wearing uh, the uh, chenin- for those chenin- of chenin- you who can't
0: see the shirt it's uh chenin, chenin- uh Blanc as yes. the yeah yeah
1: so this was a shirt created by Pascaline lepeltier um, and i think I think I've had this shirt for like six or seven years, nice, but it I was very intrigued as to why this one sommelier when I was like really looking up to other psalms, especially in New York psalms, I was like, why yeah. why is she so compelled by this grape? And so I started drinking a good bit of Shannon and I I once I once uh boarded a flight to go to Noble Rot so that I could drink nineteen eighty one Kool-Aid Saran. Oh, um, in London. Yeah. Oh, cool. I I like I had other plans as <laughs> well, but I immediately saw this on, on their Instagram or something like that. And I was like, um, I would like to drink that. And yeah. so, like, took a trip to London and and had that. And I believe this was, like, the last year before he had fully converted to, to Biodynamics or somewhere in that range. Okay. Uh, and it was crazy, like, how lively that wine was. And this, I'm talking this was 2016 that I drank this. Yeah and just the, the insanity of, of how good this wine was. And at the time, also, there's a gentleman sitting next to me drinking a bottle of Arnaud Ant, and I'm like, could I try that too? <laughs> and he's like, absolutely. Uh, and so I, I had myself quite a day drinking wine that was well above my pay grade.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. So you went six times in the uh, just to try yeah. a proper flight of uh, Coulouse de Saron. Yeah. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, I... Um, I do ridiculous things for things that I really want. Yeah. Uh, I One time, I was on a train for like 16 hours for a sandwich. Uh, to go get one in From Florence. Where? In Florence. Al Veneo in Florence. Oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess I could be a little obsessive about things. Yeah. Uh, but I, I feel
0: like that's kind of, you know, that is part and parcel for a lot of wine people. I think especially for... Um, you know, the more non-interventionist wine-loving wine wine people. I feel like there's this, like, old jazz record collector kind of vibe where, you know, you're not necessarily after, you know, the first gross of the world. You're not seeking out the most expensive wine. You're seeking, like, the rarest and the most special to a critical, discerning eye.
1: I want want a cool experience, and there's a bit of a joy is in the journey sort of situation for me as well. Where all the things that you go through to get to this thing that you really want kind of help either build it up or, or create barriers of, of kind of difficulty around it, and it all makes that that first sip, that first bite, that much sweeter when you get there. It's
0: Odyssean. It's like the hero's yes. the hero's quest. Yes, I dig that. Yeah, um, and I think I, I do equally adore about the wine, you know, game on, on kind of that obsessive side that I feel like that's your ticket to entry. You know, um, and I feel like there is this poetic way in which, you know, language of origin, place of origin, you know, race, gender, all that other stuff kind of can recede if you speak the same language, you yeah. know, and if you're excited about things in a particular way, then, you know, that's your skeleton key and, and yeah. you're, you you kind of belong at that point. Um, and, you know... I think there's I think there's something special about that. Um I agree. for the sake of the line.
1: No, uh, I really agree. And I you know, I think that that sort of there's almost something that makes it more human, more relatable when other people can see what something means to you, how excited it makes you, what you're willing to go through for it. Uh, they're like, oh, like I understand, you know, why you feel that way about this thing. I may not feel that way about this thing, but I feel that way about something else. And it brings me joy that you have that same excitement for something. Yeah,
0: and I think there's like a philosophical basis for it too, for the sake of, you know, quote-unquote natural wine, however you want to define that. Um, You know, there are these bigger underpinnings, you know, that um, are attached to what makes this thing so special. You know, it's not just that it's rare or that it's expensive. It's that it's made in a particular way by a people who share a particular belief system and, you know, believe in, you know, the kind of um, sanctity of, of this thing that is wine. And um, I think when you, when you have that, you know, there's almost like a religiosity to it. Um, in, in the best possible way, not in a, like, wars of religion kind of way.
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, to simplify it really, what, you know, when we talk about, you know, natural wine, and, and we, we just talk about people. Yeah. Uh, we talk about the connection that, that people have to a place and that people have to other people and that people have to the product. And, you know, it's all about relationships. And we try to focus on that as much as we possibly can, you know, as, as, a, as a book, as, as a shop. We, we want to make it about the people who are involved and ultimately you know we like to buy wines from people that we enjoy but we also like to buy good wine uh, and so you 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 have like a bit of of a pathway for making choices where it's like okay yeah like this wine is good but that person sucks yeah uh, it's it's like so yeah like it's not worth it do you um, find it
0: easier to have converse, like hard conversations about diversity inclusivity in the natural wine world than it is you know, elsewhere in the industry?
1: Yes. Uh, because I, I feel like that's just a part of the conversation within our world. Yeah. Uh, I think that, you know, when you get into wine for some other people, it comes off as more of a, a business, a trophy hunt. It's a, it's a lot of different things where it's not necessarily about the people who are involved in making it or, or all the hands that, that it goes through to get to you. Yeah, And so a lot of, a lot of what makes it important is kind of forgotten and lost and it makes it into this whole product of like, Oh, like I don't, I don't want to know these things. I just want to know, is it good? Should I pay a lot of money for it? What's the rating? Yeah. And, and you know, it feels more transactional. It's transactional. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah, I, and I, I hate that for, for wine because it's not supposed to be transactional. Yeah. It's supposed to be an experience. It's supposed to be, you know, even if you're drinking, you know, a bottle of two buck Chuck on a Monday afternoon, uh, you know, there's a reason for it. There's there's something that you're getting out of it. Yeah. Um, you know, drinking something like this with you this afternoon is you know it's such a cool experience. We're you know sitting in this beautiful lobby. Uh, we're having this chat and we're drinking these delightful wines that are continuing to evolve in our glasses. And that you know there is no transaction here. There's no there's nothing except for us enjoying something that's in front of us. And I think that you know, just kind of trying to take that approach of simplicity to this entire thing is really important to what we do and how we view wine and how we talk about wine.
0: Well said, sir. Um, So a bit of verse as threatened. Um, uh, This is uh, from uh, Langston Hughes's um, collection. Uh, uh, Langston Hughes, um, kind of uh, bard of the Harlem Renaissance, Uh, lived uh, for part of his life in in Washington, DC. And uh, I read uh, online, this is a, a, a favorite Eric um, Moore-ism, and I apologize for quoting you too. (laughs) That's okay. always feels awkward. Uh,
1: I'm very concerned right now. now. (laughs) Yeah, I know, but I I
0: find find too when when people have done this to me, I'm always like, shit, I said that? Fuck. (laughs) Uh,
1: That's what I'm waiting for.
0: (laughs) I don't even remember saying that. Um, uh, At any rate, uh, so uh, the quote is, uh, I want to make people uncomfortable. Uh, I want more people around who make people uncomfortable. Uh, Thinking about something in a way that you haven't had to think about. Uh, As we open up... and more people get comfortable. uh, They're going to seek out other people, uh, like people of color, women, people from non-historic wine countries. Uh, I think that we're gonna start having more conversations and I wanna be a part of that. Um, So uh, this bit of verse is called The Thorn. Now there will be nobody, you say, to start a cause, celebrate, to snatch a brand from the burning or be a thorn in the side. You must be forgetting the cause not yet celebrate the brand that's in the burning, the thorn that awaits turning, that turns with nobody there to start the turning. That's brilliant. Um,
1: Langston Hughes, I just want to say Langston Hughes for, you know, I grew up in in Charlotte when I was younger. And Langston Hughes was somebody who a lot of my teachers put in front of me. A lot as like one of ten black kids at my school, and <laughs> here, it's like here, read this black poet. Um, and I didn't get it at first. I was like, "What, like, what are you doing?" And yeah. then, like now, I, I get it. I'm like, "Thank you, yeah, thank you for looking out. I really appreciate that. I didn't know what you were doing then, but I'm like, I get it now.
0: Yeah, I mean, Langston's a, like his verse is approachable. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean it, it um, and you know, it, it speaks to you know these broader. Human themes um, in a way that I think is 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 very is very relatable, um, and you know for the for the sake of this exercise, you know as much as I love you know more difficult esoteric kinds of poems, mm-hmm. you know for for the sake of a broader audience and uh, welcoming guests, I, I find it's better to um, you know stick with things that are a little more digestible and in, in single serving format. Yeah, um, uh, what's next for you, man? Uh, you are currently managing. Um, the uh, wine club at Domestique and um, uh, acting as a, a sales rep at Selection Install. Um yeah. Do you see yourself doing that for the foreseeable future?
1: I, I'm having a good time professionally for, you know, and I have been for the last four years. Uh, yeah, my four year anniversary at Domestique is coming up next month, which is really crazy to me. But I'm really professionally happy for probably the Second time in my career. Oh, nice. Uh, and so, you know, just trying to do all of these things better and be more effective at them and, and, and then to, to, you know, continue to grow what we're trying to do. Um, I don't see myself doing anything terribly different anytime soon. Yeah, uh, That, you know, coupled with the fact that I've been in D.C. for... A little over four years now Uh, we're coming up on you know we're into my fifth year in dc and i have started to feel so comfortable here i've started to really appreciate the city for what it has to offer uh, as well as what i have to offer the city and I just fall in love with it a little bit more every day. So oh, That's awesome. Well, like, and hopefully you
0: get to experience a little more of it post-pandemic than you did. Yeah. Uh, and you picked a hell of a time to come here for the sake of an insurrection. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> you're telling me. <laughs> I, uh, yeah,
1: I, <laughs> I had a really interesting lead-up event moving to D.C. Yeah. where the Capitals beat the Penguins in the playoffs for the first time in 24 years. Uh, Are you still bitter about that? Could you tell? <laughs> uh, Donald Trump was president. <laughs> uh, I think we're all
0: still bitter about that. Yeah,
1: yes. uh, yeah. Then, like getting here, we had you know January six. We've had all sorts of things happen, but you know, DC is not an easy town to kind of get right into. It took me a good like twelve months to figure out where the hell I was going. Yeah, uh, and then you know after that you had a little bit of time where i was like okay like this is cool and like i'm starting to figure out where i hang out and then the pandemic hit and now I'll, i'm like okay well here's what i want to do and here's all the things that i can do and and i've really just i've gotten to see so much of the city over the last i mean you know this is terrible but like the pandemic you know killing traffic was awesome for me riding a bike around the city yes uh so that was cool but, Although the,
0: the mayor does continue to um, uh, create new bike lines. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever her merit says, as an elected official, Bowser has done a good job with the, the bike
1: lines. Yeah. Um, and I've just gotten to, to, to understand how to get places and little spots that I really like to go and kind of relax by myself or a or little place I can go and have a drink or a bite to eat. Um, and having those places in a city are, are really important to, to your happiness. So... I'm really happy that I've, I've really grown into that over the last couple of years.
0: Awesome. Uh, Where can people find you?
1: Ooh, Um, you can always find me at Domestique on the weekends. Uh, Uh, And where, where is Domestique for the uninitiated? Domestique is on the corner of Florida and North Capitol, uh, technically the Truxton Circle neighborhood. Uh, You're between Bloomingdale, Eckington, and Noma. Um, Otherwise you will find me at a bake joint for coffee, four or five mornings a week. Uh, occasionally down at yellow, uh, you will always find me somewhere where coffee is being offered <laughs> um, if i 'm not drinking wine it 's definitely coffee
0: uh brent and uh you 're online for the instagram yeah
1: instagram at i 'm appalling
0: i'm you no you must have gotten in early on that Instagram handle because I feel like there are other people clamoring to be appalling uh yeah <laughs>
1: i it it started with this uh, i mean it started with like a, an incident that happened in a college class where i uh So I was taking an African-American studies course and showed up to said course in seersucker shorts and Sperry's and a polo, puka shell necklace, like very befitting of anybody in 2009 living in Wilmington, North Carolina.
0: Oh, heard. Uh, See, I I think of that as, so I mean, you're from the South, but I mean, or or grew up in, in, I think of that as more like a Nantucket-like vibe. yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I just looked... Like an asshole, so. <laughs> uh,
0: uh, you're you're still wearing all of those things. For- yeah, yeah. Just I mean, yeah. I, I, I,
1: I didn't change. I'm very comfortable with uh, with my with my, my style. Uh, I like to think that I dress well. Uh, but it, it was a woman in my class, and she was just so disgusted with me. Was like, you're, you're appalling. Like you... And I was like, okay. And did so, you get a chance
0: to participate in the class conversation at that point, or just the mere fact of you looking the way you did was appalling?
1: Oh, no, she, she just immediately dumped on me and then <laughs> continued dumping on me for about five minutes. And I was, just, I, was, I was laughing so hard I was crying. I was getting roasted, just absolutely roasted. In front of eighty-five other people. Nice. Um, thankfully, I came back from that, uh, but it, it created a a blog uh, which I had back in two thousand nine, two thousand nice. eleven, called Absolutely. On what platform? It's on like Facebook. That okay, I had like a okay. WordPress and like. No, nice. Yeah, I like lost all the passwords and that stuff. So if you guys see that up on the internet, no, you didn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know it like i joined instagram i know, i joined instagram in like 2012 right before i went to europe for the first time yeah um and it just made sense and so nice. it's unfortunately how i've become known nice uh like i i've been called by username in public and <laughs> nice. i'm like all right yeah let's go yeah
0: well no it's like uh it's like you took a heel turn in wrestling. Yeah, you know? yeah, like yeah you, exactly. Just, you just own it at thank, this point.
1: Thank you for taking me once again back to 1999, Yeah, <laughs> uh, watching WWE and yeah, uh, exactly, exactly. listening exactly. to Limp Bizkit.
0: No, everybody loves a good heel. I mean, everybody <laughs> loves a good Heel's better than a hero. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much again uh, for joining us. Uh, for those of you listening, if you want to find us, uh, we are uh, equally on the gram uh, with a... Um, Less of a heel turn, uh, much much less um, uh, creative for the sake of our Instagram handle. It is just at Universe in a Glass. Uh, all of the wines, which is to say, uh, two of the finest Chenin Blancs from the Lar Valley you're likely to encounter anywhere, will be available for sale at uh, Revelers Hour, uh, which is on Columbia Road across the street from our Line Hotel studio. Thank you for listening. Stay thirsty and stay tuned for more The Universe in a Glass.